to Heart, the 87th Precinct podcast. We're back looking at Killer's Wedge by Ed McBain from 1959. We've got three years into his uh, 87th Precinct series. Finally got into 1959. And we are moving on to another new style of book, I think, really. This one here. I am joined, as usual, by Mr. Stephen Royston and Mr. Morgan Brown. Good evening. Uh, Hello there. And we've all just watched... The TV series episode Lady in Waiting, which is based on this, so we'll probably talk about that as well. But we'll kick off as we've moved into a new year. I do like to uh, look back to the days of yore and we'll go back to 1959. So this book was registered for copyright in January of 1959. He, he, did, he released three 87th Precinct novels in 1959, so it was a busy year. In fact, he, he published six books in total, not three eight seventh precinct ones and, and three other ones. So he was a bit of a busy writer about this time. Mm. Let's have a little look at the... Well, we like to look at the music. I won't make you guess this time because I, I can't wait to get round to it. The number one in uh, the UK around 1959, January 1959, was It's Only Make Believe by Conway Twitty. Marvellous. But even better was number two was Hootsmon by Lord Rockingham's oh. Eleven, which is known to a whole generation of people through I think being on an advert once, wasn't it? Absolutely, for, yeah. Fruit pastels or something like that. Well, what's that? Uh, Maynard's wine gums. If Maynard's you know wine gums. <laughs> was that the? Um... There's a moose loose about this hoose. Yeah, the the uh, halcyon days of early British rock. Yeah, that's what we were all listening to. But even better, in America at this time, the number one song was the Chipmunk song by the Chipmunks. <laughs> Excellent. Or Dave Seville and the Chipmunks, to be more accurate. The, ro- the rodent invasion. Yeah. It was a Christmas song, the original Chipmunk song, and it was still in the charts at number one in into January of the next year. And it, so it was ahead of Smoke Gets In Your Eyes by the Platters, which mm-hmm. I think people would has got a bit more of a legacy, really. <laughs> Although, did the Platters ever have a series of animated cartoons and a spin-off series of films? Not that I'm aware of yet. No, well, they should have. Where every episode ends with them going, Oh, we're trapped, I can't see anything! There's all this smoke! (laughs) 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 That's what happens, you see. And that's why... I'm sure it's in, uh, yeah... Hollywood don't return my calls. Pre-production somewhere. Uh, anyway, the best picture of 1959, I think I said this was last year, uh, last year's, 1958's, <clears throat> which was Gigi, Gigi oh, yes. but 1958's one was The Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm. And in the UK, some of the films that were out were The Hound of the Baskervilles, the version with Peter Cushing and Andre Morel. Yep. Oh, Christopher Lee's in that, doesn't he play a yes. Sir Henry Baskerville? he does play Sir Henry oh. Baskerville. Andre Morel was in uh, some of the Quatermass TV yeah, he series. Was, yeah. very good. Best quite a mass. Also out was um, Our Man in Havana, which is a very good adaptation of the Graham Greene book. The film version of the radio series The Navy Lark, which starred no one from the Navy Lark radio <laughs> series except Leslie Phillips. I never knew they made a film of that. Yeah, they? it's not very well thought of. And uh, Expresso Bongo, which is <laughs> excellent. An early sort of pop film, isn't it? It's a, Cliff and the Shads. Yeah, it's a bit of a dafty. 1959. The Shads. The Shads. <laughs> yeah, to, to me, they're the Shads. Yeah. To you, they may be the Shadows. And some notable births from January 1959. Uh, Susanna Hoffs. Mm. Sade. Mm. And Vic Reeves. Oh. So, Good year. Yeah, classic, classic lineup. 
<laughs> Obviously, things that happened in 1959 early in the year were, sadly, the um, plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, Big Bopper and their pilot. But we're not going to dwell on the death of much-loved music performers and the Big Bopper. Oh, oh, that's, oh. that's silly, because I like the Big Bopper well, as well. of course. Um, yeah, so we're getting on to Killer's Wedge, 1959. Now, we've got a bit of a publishing background thing going on here, because up to now, these have really just been paperbacks that have come out in pocketbooks by Perma Books, a division of Simon & Schuster. With Killer's Wedge, this is the first one that gets a, a hardback coffee. Oh, so there's okay. a hardback version. It's published as an inner sanctum mystery. So a range of books called an inner sanctum mystery. Oh, Still okay. just an eighty-seven precinct book, but that's clearly what they were calling their hardcover mystery editions at the time. Oh, okay. The cover of the book doesn't even have the words eighty-seventh precinct on it, and it seems to be quite rare. But that's no surprise, really. So yeah, it's. So almost standalone when it came out then? Yeah, I think so. See. Presumably by this point the series has started to really make an impact right. and he's, it's been big enough and popular enough that they feel like they can invest into a hardback right. edition because it's going to cost them more to produce, That's, which is going to bring yeah. them in more money, isn't it? But the, Yeah, but they anticipate they get a greater yeah. readership. They're still public pub- libraries would hardbacks. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Libraries. So I, a, a, I suspect something with a bit more longevity and not something that's just like a, an ephemeral kind of throwaway paperback. Which is mm. it's nice. They're starting to think of him like that. I guess. Yeah. Mm. I mean, this paperback edition as well, still in, in in perma books. But it's an interesting point that it happens with this book because I think again, we seem to be saying it quite a lot, but I think that's the nature of a an early series of books is. Almost every time we're getting something new or a change in style or a change in the possibilities of what what the author can do. And this is a real a real area where this book stands out, I think. Other interesting background about this. I was trying to find some contemporary research, see if I could find any reviews and things like that. From the New York Times in 1958, from August 1958, okay. I found the line... It was all about the books that he'd had out up to that point. It said, Mr. Hunter now is reworking the yet unpublished Killer's Wedge into a play for Broadway. Oh, right. Although it misspells Broadway as Boradway. <laughs> Boradway. <laughs> so it's interesting that he clearly felt something about this story because I also found that he repeatedly tried over the years to try and do stage play versions of it, about 40 times apparently. He tried to adapt this into a, a stage play. Oh. And actually, think about it, it could make a very good stage yes. play. Or, or the A plot of it certainly could be. He apparently was encouraged to do it by a writer, composer, songwriter called Jules Stein, who was a British-American, who'd worked with Frank Sinatra, um, Sammy Khan, people like that, and was the writer of the music for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, oh. um, Mr Magoo's Christmas Carol... Funny Girl wrote Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Three Coins in the Fountain, The Party's Over, (laughs) things like that. (laughs) Tremendous. And he apparently encouraged Evan Hunter to try and adapt this into a play or possibly a musical even. I don't know. That would have been fun, wouldn't it? It would have certainly been interesting. What rhymes with nitroglycerin? (laughs) (laughs) Good dance numbers in this, I can imagine. 
Yeah, well, it certainly reads like a play. Yeah, without even knowing all that, I, I, I kind of assumed it was some kind of desire to write a kind of a, a chain, you know, like a, uh, don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Um, well, you think uh, you were, uh, like chamber piece. Yeah, like chamber, small, that's small exactly, contained. Chamber piece is exactly what I was after, yeah. Um, definitely, because it stands out so differently to the earlier books. Uh, so that comes as no surprise at all, actually. No, yeah. it would be very interesting to read it almost as a as a script. But we have just watched the TV adaptation mm. of it from the from the Eight Seventh Precinct series in the early sixties, which Evan Hunter, Ed McBain adapted himself, oh, right. mm. and did a pretty good job of that, I think. Um, yeah, the most faithful to the book, I would say. Then perhaps is no coincidence. No, very <laughs> the true. Previous ones we watched. Although I still don't understand why they changed characters' names for that for no reason. Seems odd. We've had it? this yeah. discussion before, but it's just some very very odd ones. But we don't need to go over that particularly. Anyway, the book is dedicated to um, Helen and Jean. Have your have your copies both got this dedication in? Just as literally the words um, Hel- for Helen and Jean. Helen and Jean. Yep. Okay, so. I found out who they were anyway. Uh-huh. Gene Simmons and uh, <laughs> Helen Shapiro. Gene Simmons, <laughs> together at last. Their new duets album. That would be wonderful. Who were they? It was Gene Federico, who was an advertising director, graphic designer and photographer, and had taken pictures of uh, Evan Hunter for dust jackets mm. for hardcovers editions of his books because the paperbacks didn't really carry pictures like that and his wife was also a graphic designer who was an author of children's books and worked on cookery books and things like that mm. so that's who those people are it's always interesting to yes. find out a little bit about mm. the world and the people I don't know maybe maybe you didn't like them <laughs> here's a really grim story about <laughs> about someone's yeah. death <laughs> excellent so there's a little bit of background on it anyway. We don't we're not overloaded with loads of locations in this book are we? We're, we've no, got I think, only a couple. I think it comes as streamlined and slimmed down as they come really mm, these. Definitely. Just two. You see you could definitely do the entire book as a um, as a theater production a single set you, really. Yeah. yeah, you would just uh, there's essentially two um rooms in the entire well, book. They've got one set in the squad room, of which yeah. the main thrust of the story is, and then like the side plot is set in this creepy old house that it yeah. seems inconceivable. He's still standing in uh, uh, in the city, uh, where uh, Carella's investigating this uh, murder in a bit of a, uh, a locked room mystery, mm. um, and so you would just pretty much need that as well. So, yeah, yeah I, I think if, if they adapted it for a play, though, I think they'd jettison that plot, like they did in the TV series. Well, possibly, yeah, but you, you could still have it up and... Um, well, you yeah. creative staging, you could yeah. do it quite easily, I think, probably. Even almost have, like, the Corella scenes as almost a, a front-of-curtain thing, really. It, it's It'd be doable. Ooh. Yes, definitely. It opens in the squad room, and we're in set in October, on a hot October day. It's a, a normal everyday afternoon at the beginning of October. That's the first line of the book. Probably the most conspicuously um, unspectacular first line of a book you could imagine. Yes, it is. But that's great because the end of chapter one ends immediately on a massive cliffhanger. Yeah. So you only have to, it is a bit like the fade in at the start of an episode on yeah. the TV series and then the pre credits. Chapter two should just say credits sequence. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, a hot day in October this is set. We are recording this at the height of the English summer, and you can tell because it is absolutely <laughs> pouring down with rain, typically. But it opens on a, on a great squad room scene where the cops are sitting around having a bit of usual um, laddish banter. Some bants. Yeah, some, some bants going around. Oh, bants. I like the idea as well that the sound, the sound of um, the squad room is a well-constructed symphony, a three-part harmony built on telephone rings, typewriter clackings and profanities, so t- <laughs> typing and swearing. I wonder yeah. if one's related to the other. Some good variations there too. Yes, the splendid whooshy sound of a bull's fist crashing into a thief's belly. Wow. So clearly the institutional violence is still expected and commonplace there, here. Yeah. And an angry detective shouting about where the hell his ballpoint pen's gone. But it, it starts out like that as, you know, very much a, he's, he's saying this is just a day, a mm. typical day. This is what it's like in a squad room. This is how it sounds. This is how people act. Into which our protagonist, is that the word? I don't Antagonist. antagonist That's the word I'm looking yeah. for, isn't it? Our antagonist turns up and she looks for a moment like death personified. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 indeed. The detective stared at her. Her hand slipped into the pocket on the right-hand side of her coat. When it emerged, it was holding something cold and hard. What could it be? A spoon. spoon. Lump of coal. (laughs) It was a .38 revolver. I assume it's a revolver. Is it? I don't know. Gun. Let's just say gun. .38. Yeah. And so the amazing thing about this book is that this woman starts to hold up an entire squad room in a very busy police station, and he goes into specifics about how many people are there later in the in the book because she demands to know. But she manages with one gun at this point to take the detectives' division hostage. Yep. So that's you know she's determined. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and she's obviously. It turns out after Steve Carella, and they all like Steve Carella because he's the best. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so they're obviously a bit concerned. But what uh, McBain's done is cleverly, as we've mentioned there, given him a, a plot of his own to be dealing with mm, to keep him out yes. of the some dusty old house, yeah, you know, the squad room with some deranged family. <laughs> yeah, so he's investigating what appears to be a suicide. So they're required by law to investigate a suicide. But he gets there and he clearly gets the instinct that something's not quite right. It's a right. bit of a hunch, doesn't he? It's, um, yeah. But it's a bit of a lock, as I said before, a bit of a locked room mystery because the guy with the room was locked from the inside, wasn't it? And the yeah. guy was strung up and the, uh, the, he'd uh, seemingly hung himself but tied the rope to the door handle so it was totally impossible that anybody could have um, done this uh, yeah. crime. It's quite a sort of... Uh, Throwback to to an earlier age of, of mystery novels, really. And, and he the, mentions. I, I was I was looking for it because I've forgotten the the name that he refers John to. John Dixon Carr. That's the guy. Yeah. So uh, who's this John Dixon Carr? He he uh, was a crime writer that specialised in um, locked room mysteries, particularly yeah, like American writer I think, yeah. but wrote about in mainly in British settings, influenced by Chesterton and in like dusty old houses, yeah, just like very that. much kind of. Well, wealthy families with uh, lots of little intrigues um, between are them. Are we sort of talking a contemporary of uh, Agatha Christie type? 
think so. Yeah, I've I've read one of them, and I honestly can't. I think it involves this guy. Or I think they're they're a bit of a supernatural element to some of them, or certainly the one I read. I think had a bit of a you were a bit like Hand of the Baskervilles. You weren't quite yeah. obviously. I think sounds like you're describing. End, you know, you, you know, but um, obviously it was. Yeah, is I it, can't quite is remember. Doctor Gideon Fell is that one of his, yeah, his that's, main yeah. um, detectives? And there's another one as well. But I've forgotten. yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, oh crikey, yeah, I'm trying to wrap my brains here. But yeah, there was some some guy who'd been who's been haunted almost by this person who he knows to be dead or something and. Then he dies in this room. It's totally impossible that anybody could have ever got in. Mm-hmm. It sounds explains like... at great length how well similar to this how yeah. you know you just need to like tweak a couple of facts. Yeah, yeah, and they always they always like Jonathan Creek. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> was he stabbed by an icicle that then evaporated and you know all those kind of yeah. shenanigans? Well, certainly by this stage, that that's a, a well-known and dusty enough trope to to for, for this to be a very kind of knowing nod, isn't it? I think. Yeah, but he, yeah, McBain does kind of. Mention him in here because he says, it's always felt like something that. Is, you know, doesn't Corella say, what, what do we do now, Cole? <laughs> John Dixon Carr, yeah. I think it's John Dixon Carr. Yeah, I think it's. McBain always wears his influences on his mm. sleeve. He always makes a reference when yeah. he does something that appears to be ripped yeah. off from or is clearly in the tradition or influenced by stuff, such as constantly referring to Dragnet. Mm-hmm. There's even a little throwaway dragnet line in this. I think most of the books we've read so far somewhere have a reference to the police work either being like something off dragnet or something or being completely not like something <laughs> off dragnet. Oh, yeah, the uh, yeah yeah it must be the thirties here. The Hollow Man is that the one I read? Uh, I shall investigate. You investigate. <laughs> so we've got a squad room held up by. Mrs. Virginia Dodge. Oh, I'm getting a nod from Steve. Yes, it, it definitely was the Hollow Man, and um, according to um, the internet, his masterpiece. And I do have to. 1935. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. The yeah yeah. This is it. The illusionist Pierre Flair claims to have murdered. Yeah, but people can rise from their graves and walk through walls. There you go. I knew there was. Oh, some... sounds, sounds interesting. I'd like to read that. Yeah, there was. I knew there was a certain supernatural element to it. Supernatural elephant. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway, there he is. And yeah. So that Agatha Christie kind of. Yeah. So that. Yeah. In, interwar period. Mm-hmm. Type of thing. Yeah. So we've got Virginia Dodge, who is our antagonist in the squad room, holding up some of the detectives mm-hmm. and the lieutenant. Uh, Lieutenant Burns. Yep. Bullet-headed Pete Burns. Who features very heavily in this book. He does, yeah. And not at all in the TV adaptation. His role's given over to Maya Maya. I don't think he's appeared in that... I've seen him twice, two episodes I've seen of him. Yeah, he he comes out of his room in Mm. one of them, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit strange how they don't bother. (laughs) Yeah, and then Corella's off on this this to-do. Corella's gone there after finding out that... Or confirming that Teddy is pregnant. So uh-huh. Teddy Carella, his wife, is now pregnant. So there's more jeopardy in there and that we know that. And Carella's keen to get his job sorted out. But he's being a good cop as he is. He can't quite just walk away going, oh, it was a suicide. Is something's, yeah. you know, his instincts are kicking in and he's, he's hanging around there. And as the book goes on, all of the detectives who are on shift, safe Carella, end up back in the squad room. 
and have to be dealt with by Mrs. Frank Dodge, Virgin- uh. Virginia Dodge, who has got a bottle of soup. Soup. Nitroglycerine. Mm. And we don't know all the way through the book whether it's actually a bottle of nitro or just a bottle of tap water. Or soup. Or very, very <laughs> clear soup. Might be consomme. <laughs> yes, well, actually, this... And um, what's his name? Well, MasterChef always says, the you know, the very... The clearest consomme is the best, doesn't he? Well, yeah, Michelle Roux Jr. Famed nitroglycerine inspector, Michelle Roux Jr. <laughs> but this has been adapted several times, actually, uh, Killer's Wedge. Obviously, Lady... lady telly. Yeah, well, different things. Lady in Waiting was the telly one we watched. Yeah. There is a film, a French film in 1963 called La Soupe au Poulet, which is chicken soup. Nice. So that's where soup comes from. There was a thing called Theatre of Stars, Deadlock, in 1967. I don't know what that was. Gosh. And a Japanese version called Satsui uh, in 2005. I think there was quite a few adapta- adaptations in uh, Japan of things. It's quite hard to find the information out on the internet right. because as soon as you start looking for anything Japanese, you end up with loads of Japanese websites and I don't read or speak Japanese. <laughs> so it was obviously a popular one to adapt. Mm. Yes, one of it's called Chicken Soup in French. I'd like to find that one. I'd be interested yeah. to see see what that was like. But it's it's great. It just it's such a tense story because he manages to do what it's almost completely unbelievable that one woman could walk into a police station and capture everyone, mm. given how many guns there are knocking about. Yeah, but it. it Although the, the basic situation is fairly implausible, I think he actually explains the psychology behind it well enough that it seems completely credible while it's actually happening. Yeah. You, you can totally understand why no one has actually stepped in to stop the situation. Um, and and the way he gets inside the different characters' thought processes is one of the things that makes it really compelling. Whereas normally your, your interest is driven by the actual procedure of people going out and doing these different bits of police work and it's action and there's a lot of stuff going on. This is mainly just some people standing around in a room with this simmering tension. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's every bit as, as compelling, if not more so, than any of the, the books in the series so far. Yeah, and all, the, all these detectives keep coming back in and having to deal with the situation and you get to see their thought processes mm. played out and you get to see them in little chunks as the, as the chapters go by, as they speculate, as they get more frustrated, as things become more difficult, as more people turn up. Quite like they're, uh, they've all, all got their little schemes of how they think they're going to get out of yeah. here with yeah. Mayor Post and his, uh, his uh, little messages that he's sent. And then the story of the people who've picking this up in the the outside world. Yeah. The, there's a pair of drunks, aren't there, who get the uh, group of lads who are oh, all group drunk of, and they, they, they don't really know what to do with it. And they, they're a little bit more concerned with going off and trying to find some prostitutes, I seem to recall. And then yes. somebody just picks it up, don't they, and uh, thinks it's just a hoax and throws it away mm. immediately. Um, and then there's the... Um... Well, there's, there's a, someone who doesn't speak or read English, ah, picks right, it up yeah. and doesn't understand it and bins it. There's the three lads from who college students, yeah. university students, who are on on the booze and decide to go off and try and find some prostitutes, and they are really horrible characters. They are. They, they provide, actually, a, provide a bit of comic relief, but they're quite yeah. Their comic garment. relief starts with them discussing assaulting their teacher. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which 
it's an interesting throwback to Blackboard Jungle. Now I've just thought of that because right. that does actually happen in Blackboard Jungle. But yeah, it's played. Oh, they're seedy little. They're, they're vile, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and they're also they're really preppy and a bit sort of like you can tell if you if you were in the bar next to them, they would not be nice people to stand next to at the bar. You kind of get the impression that, that the author's not particularly fond of that type of character, and he's do, do, taking great pleasure in lampooning a certain type of preppy youngster yeah. who he's probably encountered in his daily life. Um, yeah. But at least one of them does does the right thing, mm. and, and when he finds the note, goes off to uh, ring up headquarters, who singularly fail to pick up on the cues that they're given from the 87th squad when they ring up to say, is this a crank type thing? And in fact, that happens throughout the way they try to communicate. So when the desk sergeant, Dave Murchison, comes up and uh, Lieutenant Peter Burns ends his chat with him with the word forthwith, and it just completely baffles him. But that's because he's trying to get across the message that something's not right. Forthwith means report immediately. Poor old Dave doesn't have a clue what's going on. There's a good dialogue between... Uh, I always love when Captain Frick's involved, because he's, like, <laughs> totally incompetent. He's totally feckless, yeah. Um, yeah, and he fails to get the uh, the hints. Uh, that the there's, cues, yeah, yeah. there's something uh, not quite right. Because, um, essentially, what Pete Burns says on the phone to Captain Frick is, why don't you come up to the squad room and see what's happening? And Captain Frick's just like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> what do you mean, Pink? Yeah. And his desk. <laughs> he was called Captain Howard in the TV episode, wasn't he, for some yeah. reason? Oh, yeah, so he and was. had a huge nameplate on his desk. You just did. in case you weren't sure. Flipping, yeah, hedge. <laughs> size of a hedge. The universal size measurement for nameplates. True. <laughs> Um, but at least Dave Murchison gets to go back to his desk and ponder on it. Captain Frick doesn't get into any danger, although he would be if the does he even night... go upstairs? Murchison in the book, I can't he does. He yeah. does. He does. Yeah. He does. Probably at one point, yeah. Mm. Is that when he hears the gunshot like he did in the TV? Yeah. Yes. So, because the gun is discharged, and the very poor person who receives the gunshot wound in this uh, story is poor old clerical. Patrolman Alf Miscolo or Miscolo oh, serves him right for all that terrible coffee he's made. <laughs> well, will make in future years. <laughs> yes, this is it the... doesn't make his coffee any better. Certainly, we will be talking about uh, Miscolo's coffee making um, adventures and mis- misfortunes in the next book. I don't think he's ma- I don't think he's been in that many. No, he hasn't by this um, point. But he does mm. feature a bit more with his cheery call of yo every yeah. time he's called. Yeah, he'd be. He, 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 generally kind of crops up after this, I think, doesn't mm. he? But he has quite a dramatic um, mm. role in this book because he, he comes into the room, tries to run out, but is shot. And we end up later in the story with a really quite vivid... We look into sort of... He's having a flashback while he's injured and he's oh, his... near to death. Mm. And he's having a flashback to a girl he loved before the war and his time in the war. And... It's it's quite dramatic and it's oh. quite heartbreaking, really. Is, yeah. And despite that, the weird thing is it reminded me of a sequence in the first four Transformers comics. It sounds like a daft thing to say. In the first four Transformers comics, you have the human characters, Sparkplug, Witwicky, his son, Buster. 
Spark Plug is held captive by the Decepticons and forced to make them new fuel, but at one point he has a heart attack and gets knocked out and he has a he has a war flashback. Like Is it human? Spark Plug Whitwicky, yeah. Alright. Oh, and so and it was really weird because I remember reading that comic and it's like, oh robots and in fact Spider Man in some of it as well. Hmm. And then suddenly there's this really dramatic bit where the human character's having a flashback to the hmm. Korean War. Hmm. And it's or Vietnam or something at the time, I can't remember which one it is. And it's just reminded me, Miss Golo's sort of feverish dream sort of reminds me of that. It's a strange comparison to make, but I've made it so that I love Transformers. Poor old Miss Golo. Yeah, he, he, doesn't, he gets a really raw deal on this one. Um, absolutely. It comes even worse in the television episode, but... Uh... Yeah, just kind of leave him. Yeah, you don't ever find out what happens. You kind of do in the book as well, but it's kind of less apparent when you... They they do try and look after him, but uh, where possible, don't they? But, uh, yeah. Mm. As if things couldn't get any worse, Teddy Carella decides to surprise Steve by meeting him at the squad room. So turns up there before Steve Carella does, walks straight into this. And despite uh, Pete Burns' very clever attempts to communicate to her that she needs to pretend to be someone else, we do find out, because apparently newspapers in reporting on crimes in the 87th Precinct world will do things like saying, Detective Steve Carella arrested Frank Dodge for uh, hold-up at a gas station or whatever it is. Detective Steve Carella, whose deaf-mute wife, (laughs) Teddy... It's fairly preposterous, that method. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, maybe it was... yeah. Well, they, they might have done little profiles, I suppose, of, of um, notable detectives. Who knows? Was I reading the newspaper in a fictional city in 1959? I was not. No. I could absolutely. not say. Lots of lovely little bits of detail here as well, and these these few extra characters that you get coming across. One of the people who finds one of Maya's notes is a publisher called Jeffrey Tamblin, and he gets about three or four paragraphs to himself where it just talks about how he hates publishing maths paper. Yeah, <laughs> maths books. I'd forgotten about that. It's really yeah. unusual, isn't it? Because yeah. it goes into great depth, this guy's hatred for his own profession and yeah. like what he he's just been wants, really successful at. He just wants to publish slim poetry. volumes of poetry, but instead he's forced to do things about algebra. He hates maths. I hate, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and really he's there and he's gone because he just uses the note to wipe some gum off his shoes. <laughs> is he the guy who just thinks it's nonsense? And he doesn't even read it. He, oh, just, right. he just uses it to scrape yeah. off his off his. Boot. Yeah, it, it, it's really nice weird. That he uses those um, those notes as a way of just painting these little character sketches, and then so it's a bit of kind of colour to break the tension of this this very um, claustrophobic environment that he's created in the novel. Yeah, no, he's very he's very good at that in all, Absolutely, all the books, yeah, isn't yeah. he? And. Uh, and we talked about in the past, less apparent in this, because obviously it's set prim- primarily in, well, exclusively in this, these two locations. But you never know when you're about to go off on a bit of a tangent, do you? Because mm. when you've got these wacky characters introduced, you never know whether they're going to prove critical or, you know, mm. they're critically important or not. He's uh, not whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> One other major character who we haven't mentioned, I will come to in a second, mm. who is brought into the situation by, is it Hal Willis, who brings in a prisoner? Oh, yeah. Um, but in Chapter 3, 
we get a lovely description of lots of details about the city itself and the amount of people. I think we mentioned this in the last podcast, didn't we? Yeah, but there was quite a lot in the last yeah. one, yeah. There were 90,000 people living in the 87th precinct, and he goes into a very detailed description about the roads around it. So he's got a very clear mm. idea in his mind about the, the layout of this city. We talked about maps and stuff in the last it's podcast. It's inconceivable he would have done this without a map in, having sketch something out. I reckon by this point, because he names so many mm. of the streets. Because how on earth would he like keep a track of what's north of where and what's east of where? It, you know, you'd start contradicting yourself very soon, wouldn't would you? Not build, imagine. Would, would not be able to do it at all. Yeah. So um, there must have been a yeah, uh, an Evan Hunter map. Oh, interesting. God. That would be Probably the that'd be the holy grail. Uh, <laughs> an Ed McBain hand drawn map of the eighty seventh precinct Four. or Isola. That would be uh, would be amazing. But it gives him a chance to also talk about the immigration pattern of America and of the city itself, so that he can again paint this picture of this multicultural space. Which is an ongoing theme throughout the rest of the Absolutely, 40 yeah. books to come or however many. Yeah. And there's a great little section where you, you I was reading this through again just before we started and looking at it, and I was like, oh, yeah, he does that thing where he compares mice and rats to the Nazis. <laughs> setting traps for the mice and rats, which paraded through the apartment like the Wehrmacht through Poland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nazi mice. Hmm. That then leads into a very detailed description about how many policemen are on duty at any one time. But the reason I mentioned that about the ethnic population and the, the makeup of the city is because the Puerto Ricans are a large part of it. Mm. First generation at this point, really. Puerto Ricans. And the person who gets brought into the, the midst of all of this madness in the squad room is Angelica Gomez. I'm pronouncing Angelica because that's how they pronounce it on the TV yeah. series. But Angelica Gomez. Angelica Gomez, who has slit someone's throat mm. quite rightly, <laughs> it sort of seems. She's sort of been assaulted or someone's made a very you know vigorous hands-on play for her you know? yeah I mean it, it, it's interesting because I, I, I think I've forgotten who which which member of the squad it is who's actually interviewing her but it seems to be kind of oh someone just make a pass at you but from what she's saying it sounds very much like someone pretty much sexually assaulted her yeah so she slits her throat which you know certainly it, it's, it's fairly extreme but Blame her that much, can you? No, I but don't it, know. it gives uh, McBain a chance to muse on the nature mm. of what it's like to be an immigrant in a city. Definitely, yeah. And it's 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 quite poetic and sad when she's talking about what life was like on the on the island of Puerto Rico it, it, compared to what it's like in the city. It really is. It, it's it, it, she's um, for for a character who could have just been kind of a very throwaway stereotype. She's actually given like a lot of dignity, I think, and yeah. and she, she's. Like portrayed with, with a lot more sympathy than I think some other writers probably would have at the time. Kind of spent all their money yeah, getting to the States and now like can't afford to go, <laughs> yeah. go home. And, yeah. and she's probably been forced to common... some extent into prostitution, mm. but she's got a lot of dignity and uh, talks about how the language barrier can make you appear to be less intelligent, less intelligent than you actually are. And that's a contemporary issue now as, as much as anything, really. Oh, so, so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But she walks, uh, she's dragged into the midst of this stuff and she foolishly picks a side when an event happens, when they try and 
disarm Virginia Dodge and pays for it by getting basically knocked unconscious by Virginia Dodge, who has also pistol whipped Maya Maya really vigorously, mm-hmm. shot Alf Miskolo, mm-hmm. and um, Hawes is hit as well as knees, smashed across the face by by Virginia Dodge. So she gives them all, you know, some good beatings in there. She's not exactly hinged. No. She's, no. she's a fairly formidable opponent for them as well. Yeah, definitely. They're not, not someone to be taken lightly at all. Um, yeah. Tell you what is hinged. The door in the Scott mansion that Corella is investigating. Oh, that's certainly hinged. It's hinged and it opens outwards into uh, a and, corridor, and, and, which just annoys me no and, end, doesn't it? Much, much hinges upon it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> he's definitely try, he's trying to work out how, the, how this locked room mystery happened, and it's because this body of this man who supposedly hung himself is being weighted against a door that opens into the corridor so these his sons say oh we couldn't open the door we had to crowbar it to get the lock off and all this sort of stuff mm. and which he did which well <laughs> and then the funny thing is this book's called Killer's Wedge mm. and it comes in 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 two terms as actually a physical wedge oh. in one of the stories is the key to it sorry if you've not read it you know, well, that's our spoiler policy of yeah. having no spoiler policy. Well, um, with, the, with the door in the house, great plays made by those three brothers, isn't it? Trying to open yeah. the door, and they all testify to the fact that they could not physically mm. open the door, yeah. try as they might. And the, the well, two, two of them have been well, they're all being very, very genuine about mm. that is absolutely true. Yes, and so, um, <laughs> yeah, but they. There's wedges involved in the in the real sense of the word, and then there's also the conceptual wedge uh-huh. that Virginia Dodge forces between Peter Burns and his men. He can't really do anything to command them in the, the situation. World, I suppose. And the outside world. Uh-huh. So there's wedges all over the place. Yeah. It's almost like he thought about the title. <laughs> Might be a bit different. Killers wedgy. <laughs> <laughs> That would be just talk about insult to injury. Somebody who kills someone and then pulls up their pants. Murdering people and then giving them a big wedgie. Oh, or pulls them via the wedgie. Oh, oh blimey, no. that would take some that would mm. take some strong arms. Yeah. <laughs> it's not bad thinking about really. Yeah. Yeah. Could be a totally different uh, they won't be back in theatre productions of that anyway. <laughs> no. yeah, they'll be making Disney kids TV show versions of it. <coughs> oh, my voice went funny then. Mm, well, so yeah. But so, it's probably less to be said about the, the side, because that's quite... Uh, with all these uh, locked room mysteries, yeah, as soon as you get an inkling of uh, what happens, then kind mm. of totally ruins it. So. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll not so go too deeply into that. it, but... And uh, it's obviously meant to be very much a side plot, oh, it really. Is, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it's your standard kind of family with loads of like little bitter intrigues and infighting that that, that emerge on, with a little bit of prodding, yeah, as all, always happens in these circumstances. Yeah, most of them like neurotic and got yeah, extra grind. Of, of course, and, yeah. yeah. Mm. Being I, I'm, forced into the family business. Definitely, yeah. Stuff like that. <laughs> but actually, as... Corella leaves that scene when he's when he's figured it out at least he gets to have a good uh, fight sequence proper dramatic fight mm. sequence mm. which you know he gets hit with a rake he's rolling over fires all sorts of stuff <laughs> in someone's garden it's it's a nice dramatic story oh, yeah. for him as much as anything 
There's a the, butler the, as well, isn't there? Oh, the, 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 yes, uh, yeah. he makes a point of, I think, the, 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 the narrator who points out that the butler never did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's at least one old paperback edition that does, the cover is uh, Corella uh, looking down at something, um, some burning piece of wood while someone wields a rake at the back of his head. Oh, oh yes, I think I've seen that, that cover as well. <laughs> Which, you know, it, it's a good image, although possibly misses the main point of the book. Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite pleased that the butler's called Roger. <laughs> Roger the butler. <laughs> Must I? <laughs> yeah. Good old Rog. Oh dear. Hmm. Well, I just opened the book on the phrase firm, fleshy calves. Marvellous. Mm. Ooh, Roger the butler. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have He's to wearing look at... shorts when he answers the door. <laughs> Can you imagine? The Scots were eccentric. All their staff wore shorts all year round. <laughs> It was the hottest October day on record. Roger the butler was wearing shorts to reveal his... Dot, dot, dot. No, he, wait, he said it. His fleshy, his fleshy... Firm, fleshy calves. Uh, I assume that was probably actually in reference to our uh, our old mate Angelica. Um, she, Cotton, I seem to recall, spends quite a lot of time um, with his mind wandering off to appreciate her firm, fleshy calves while he's pondering what course of action to take next yes indeed i mean she's clearly you know i hesitate to use the phrase but a sight to behold she's clearly you know dramatically beautiful and and Mm. sort of exotic to them which for cotton whores is always like yes you know it's in his wheelhouse however of course in the book before this he has met someone so Mm. he doesn't go uh, mad for it he doesn't thankfully although she does try to use her Charms mm. to get out of the situation a little she bit, does. but I think she figures she's uh, really not going to win that way. So it's fantastic. It's a fantastic <laughs> story. This one, it's it's tense. It's it's what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of the word. Well, you don't like being in small spaces. Claustrophobic. Claustrophobic. That just totally went out <laughs> of my head. It is a claustrophobic story because you're trapped in mm. there with them, especially when they start doing things like. Uh, messing around with the air conditioning, closing the windows to try and heat up the room. So you're actually in there. You've got characters like Angelica, who is comfortable with the heat, starts thinking about Puerto Rico. The rest of them start thinking about, why is it so hot? What's happening here? (laughs) And you're getting that with them because it's happening quite quickly. You've got Paul Miscolo in this 90-degree room, you know, burning up from being shot. And it's it's very claustrophobic. The Scott Mansion, in its own way, is a bit claustrophobic because mm, they're all, is, all yeah. the people who live there sort of trapped there as well. Yeah, they're, they're kind of prisoners of, uh, yeah, that prisoners of that house to a certain extent. Probably is a deliberate parallel between the two situations that have occurred in this enclosed space. Yeah, uh, definitely, it's before, like a yeah. the, the traditional lock room mystery, and then this sort of like very modern kind of. Uh, Police kind of situation that, that's occurring in a an urban setting. It's um, yeah, excellent. Okay, so I think we're going to move on to our judgments and ratings for this oh, okay. any second now. And I'm not going to recall the rest of the stories as we normally do. When I read out the scores because oh, I want no. us to go into this without reference to other things. We want to mm, just crikey. go into it. Oh no! In and of itself, it's amazing that we're only on the eighth book of this. Series it always already feels a long way on from Cop Hater, oh. but not too distant that it becomes completely unfamiliar. Really, 
So I don't know who should I go to first to ask for a, a police shields out of a hundred for this. I think I'll go over to you, Steve-O, right, for well, your summing up. Yeah, my summing up. Yeah, I do very much like it. However, Ooh. however, I do. I, I, watching the television program reminded me. I do find it just slightly too ridiculous in mm-hmm. that I'm sure they could have overcome it, even taking a bit of a leap of faith on the plot. It just seems a bit a bit too unbelievable. That yeah. said, I think it's very well done, and I do like having uh, all the squad together. Um, so, um, um, And I do like the uh, locked room mystery element also. So I shall go... 71. 71, ooh. Right, okay, 71. Right, and I'm going to Morgan next. I think I went first last time. I I do take on board uh, your suggestion that maybe you can't quite believe the situation, but whilst I don't think... I think in in the TV version, you you do wonder if maybe they could have... There are times when they could have overcome uh, Virginia. I think in the the novel, I, I feel like... McBain very skillfully kind of explains at every point why it just seems a bit too much of a leap. And then when mm-hmm. when a character does finally feel like they're able to take that leap, it's like... Eh. Yeah. Even, even at the I end, just, you kind yeah. of wonder if that was necessarily a, the, the wisest decision. So it, it, it's it's always a, a tightrope that they're walking, and, and I understand completely why... why that situation continues so uh, to me it seems credible even though it's like fairly far-fetched yeah so I, I, I think it's tremendous it's a bold leap forward I like the even more compressed time frame than, than, than the last book which mm. had this kind of fairly yeah. strict countdown this one's even more compressed it's really tense it must yeah. be like Absolutely. an hour long this book something like that it's, it's, it's a few hours, isn't it? I yeah, think. It's, a, it's a little bit longer than that. Like but three, three hours or something of an afternoon, something like that. I should have checked. Not really long, There's actually it, something but... about the, that someone mentioned the time that the family are having dinner, and mm. so I could have checked on that. But, but um, yeah, it's an, an absolutely cracking novel. I'm going to go in with a strong um, 87 p- uh, police badges. 87. 87. Oh, 87. And the 87. That should be the top score, really. Make <laughs> <laughs> the system any more complicated. Let's not change it now. <laughs> well, I am more towards Morgan's view of mm. it, that it, I think it is very well explained. They do feel that they can't risk, and, and he uses Cotton Horse to say, I come from the 30th precinct, which is very posh and quite, you know, well-to-do, doesn't have any of this madness going on, but... He says about the 87th precinct was the, the concept of fairness, mm. and that sort of underlines it. They don't want to do anything that risks anyone. Mm. So that's at the fundamental base of this. Oh, I, well, I think I've uh, just. Uh, I think <laughs> one thing that I could never get my head round is what they thought they were really going to achieve by just all sitting there in great danger, waiting for the person that she's already told them she's going to kill. That's kind of. Well, they, they, they have their various schemes, don't they? So they're all trying well, to... Well, they, they don't their... initially, though. Certainly. I don't know. Well, they all sit, they just sit around for a while before they get those. Well, they do um, know they've got a while before Corella's coming back, so they've actually got a little bit of time to play with to try and think of a way out of the situation. most of those are thwarted. I don't know. I, th- I think well, it was kind of that as well, that they're like, well, I, she's kind of, if, she, <laughs> if they didn't know what on earth she was up to, then they'd be like... 
maybe more. I don't know. Detective Royston would have been yeah. right in there. <laughs> he would, yeah. Detective Royston, would you have done what? The only thing <laughs> that I be, think you could yeah. have done, which is when she gets this point through the revolver out and says, give me your guns, you just shoot her anyway. Yeah. Like, you, nah, I'm not going <laughs> to. Well, yeah. Mind you, if nitroglycerine you, that you didn't know about, you might have ended uh, yeah, up the yeah. entire yeah. Uh, Of course. I'd lock her in a room and stab her with an ice, icicle. <laughs> and then make uh, John Dixon Carr work out who did it. Fair enough. Well, I like very much. Perhaps, yeah. Obviously, there's there's always a. They could have done this. They could have done that. No, they could. Of course, but yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I think it's very very well my, written. Yeah. I think it's phenomenally written. It's phenomenally packed with character, yeah. thought, process, detail. It, oh, it definitely is. Yeah, and yeah. so, for that reason, I'm going in for. Um, 88 Ooh. heavier police shields which gives us a total of 82 82 so 82 police shields out of 100 police shields I think we need a, we're going to need a, a countdown for the next one we've got enough now haven't we 6 or 7 is this number 6 number 7 or do we wait till we've got a top 10 a top 10 yeah maybe we'll wait till a top 10 oh, yeah, we won't be far off that the next book we will be looking at is the matrimonial Catastrophe of oh, Till Death. Yes, yeah, well, I remember that one. Yeah. Which I've uh, only just read for the first time ever. So I'll be looking forward to discussing that with you, gentlemen. I haven't read that for a long time, so I'll, I'll hopefully be able to is find that my the, copy. Uh, Corella's sister's wedding. It is. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's all sorts going on. Ooh, that. So there is. having been trapped in the squad room in this story, we move out into the world for the next one. And so. Until we get round to doing that, we are going to do a bonus episode in a little bit for you to listen to us probably smelling our books again, I should imagine, as normally happens. <laughs> so, until then, I will say goodbye myself, goodbye from me and Morgan. Fairly well. And Steve-o. Goodbye. See you soon. Bye.